Our scripture for today is Romans 8, 1 through 11. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rick. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to be with you. This is going to be a lot of fun. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, if you haven't already. We're going to continue through our series in the book of Romans this morning. And uh, what Rick just read and what we're going to continue over the next couple of weeks in Romans chapter 8 has been called one of the high water marks of all of Scripture. Romans chapter 8 has been called one of the brightest gems in all of Holy Scripture. And we're going to take several weeks and dive down into this chapter that I believe can absolutely transform your life by the truths that are here in Romans chapter 8. So I'm excited to jump into this. I have great anticipation of what these truths are going to mean for you and for your family and for our church as we continue on in this great series in the book of Romans. Now, if you are a guest, you're visiting, maybe last week was your first week, we're uh, verse by verse, we're walking through the book of Romans, and there's a, a reading plan that you can follow along, it's on our app if you want to follow along with that, or there's a, some printed guides outside. Our life groups are kind of discussing through the book of Romans, some of the truths that we talk about in here, and then Wednesday night is something called Behind the Message, great opportunity if you've not really found a place to connect uh, in the life of our church yet, that's a great opportunity. Wednesday night, 6.30, we go a little deeper, uh, take some questions uh, about the series, about the message. That's Wednesday nights at 6.30 behind the message. So check that out. Um, so this morning, Romans 8. Let me review, if I can, just a little bit where we've been in the book of Romans for the last few months. Uh, we started and we took a look at the universal condition of all people, the universal human condition that all of us, Apart from Christ, left to ourselves, are in a condition of sin. We're in a condition of being condemned before a perfectly righteous God. And that case was made by Paul very clearly in the first few chapters. Then you get on up into chapter 4 and we're reminded and taught and is revealed and made known to us that God has this provision. He has made a way for sinful men and women to be made right with a holy God and this holy God to maintain His absolute justice and His holiness that's through the person of Jesus Christ. 
sinless God-man took on my sin and your sin, rose from the dead for our justification, and by faith and faith alone in who Christ is and what he has fully accomplished, watch this, we can be right with God. We can be right with God. By faith alone. And then we come to Romans 6 and 7. And I told you a few weeks ago, one of our prayers is that we would stand in awe of the glory of the gospel and all that God has done and is doing. And we would also press down into these daily implications of the gospel into your everyday life. Because if the gospel has changed you at all, it's changing all of you. It affects you on Monday morning. Who Christ is and what Christ has done will affect you on Tuesday night and Wednesday at lunch and on Saturday. Whatever. All our life is transformed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What are the implications of this transformation? We saw in chapter 6, because of faith in Christ, we are in union. We are in union with the living Christ. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We just sang about it. What that means is his death was our death. We're dead to sin. His resurrection life is our resurrection life. We are raised to walk in the newness of life as his people. Incredible realities in the book of Romans. Now, we're getting out to Romans chapter 8, and it, and it just continues to be so incredibly glorious and so incredibly practical to our lives. Now, there's a little bit of a, a hinge that, that, that swings a little bit when you get into Romans chapter 8. Here's what I mean by that. There is a key figure, a key person, if you will, who has been very conspicuous by his absence in chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through chapter 7 of Romans, the Holy Spirit of God is mentioned one time by name in seven chapters. Now the work of the Spirit is clearly going on there, the work of regeneration, the work of life, the work of raising Christ, all that the Spirit does. But my name, the Holy Spirit, is mentioned one time in the first seven chapters. You come to Romans chapter 8, and the Holy Spirit is mentioned directly almost 20 times in one chapter. The point of me saying that is, as we go into this chapter together, and we're going to be here for a few weeks, you could put a heading over Romans chapter 8 that would be something like this, life in the Spirit. What it means for us as believers who have been filled with the Spirit, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, all these things the Bible declares to be true, what does that practically mean for us? What does that practically mean for you and for me? So what I want to do here at the beginning is I want to do just a little survey, biblically, of who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. And for some of you, maybe even introduce you to this third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll just say, I do this because I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your upbringing was. I don't know what your church background is, if, if any. I can distinctly remember when I was a little guy, I, I was growing up and my grandmother would faithfully read scripture to us and she would read out of her King James and I can distinctly remember there were a few things that stuck in my mind that troubled me even at that age. 
I can remember when my grandmother would come to verses and she would read about this mystical figure called the Holy Ghost. And I could just remember, and you're saying nothing against the King James translation, don't send me any emails, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying as a little guy, I thought, is, is he a phantom? Is he some kind of force? This Holy Ghost, I don't know what that means. I just remember trying to figure that out as a little guy. Then when I was a little bit older, I remember I traveled with a family from Irwin, I know, from Irwin, and they wanted to take me to a church service up in western North Carolina. And they said they're going to take me to this Holiness Pentecostal church service. And I said, okay, I, sign me up. I'll go check it out. I had no idea what I was getting into. So we went together and we went into what could be called the holler, a holler up in North Carolina. Y'all know what a holler is, right? If you don't know what a holler is, ask somebody from East Tennessee. They'll explain a holler. And there was this little church in this holler, and I remember it was called a revival service, and I still remember it today. And again, I, I wasn't even a believer at that point. Everything was really confusing to me. But there was a revival service and the Holy Ghost was called down, and I remember that it was a very energetic church service, and there was a lot of screaming, and there was a lot of running around, and there was a lot of shouting, and I left there horrified <laughs> of this figure called the Holy Ghost. I kind of look back on that. I chuckle a little bit. I said it somewhat to be funny, but here's the reality for many of us in this room. And boy, it was a reality for me for many years. I either had a very ignorant understanding of who the Holy Spirit was, or I had a distorted view of the Holy Spirit of God. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. We're talking about the third person of the triune God. That Paul takes great length here in Romans chapter 8 to elevate our understanding of who he is and what he does and the life we have as believers in the Spirit of God. He indwells us. And throughout Scripture, I just want to do a quick survey, and you're not going to have time to look these up. Don't start flipping your pages. You can't. Just kind of, you can write these down. These will be on the app if you want to follow some of them. I just want to do a quick overview, really quick. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says this. Help us understand and shape our view of this Holy Spirit of God. Genesis 1 says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. There's the Spirit of God, active, present in creation, bringing into existence, forming and shaping and creating from the very beginning. Genesis 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. The word the our there is a clear reference to the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So here's the Spirit of God being active in the very creation of humanity, of life. In the image of God, the triune God. 
Throughout the Old Testament and really throughout the Bible, you hear the Holy Spirit empowering God's people for service and ministry. Exodus 35, 31, the craftsmen as they built the tabernacle, it said, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in craftsmanship as enabled to do what he couldn't do. Judges 6 says, so the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Judges 14 says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily. 1 Samuel eleven six 6 says, the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. There was this empowering by the Spirit of God in the lives of God's people. You come to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20, kind of a review. Nehemiah says, you, Lord, gave your good spirit to instruct them. That was the people of Israel. God led his people Israel collectively and individually by the Holy Spirit. It says verse 30 of Nehemiah 9, however, you bore them for many years. You admonished them, the people, by your spirit through the prophets. So God, through his prophets, spoke through his Holy Spirit to his people. The activity and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has attributes of personhood. I want to be very clear this morning. He's not a phantom. He's not a force. He's not an it. The Holy Spirit is, a, is God with the attributes of personhood. Isaiah 63.10 says, but they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. You can only grieve a person, a divine person, holy God. Acts 5 says they lied to the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 says you can quench the Holy Spirit. Psalm 139 verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Not only does he have the attributes of personhood, he has the characteristics of deity. He is unlimited in his understanding, unlimited in his presence. This Holy Spirit of God. Then you get to the book of Ezekiel. And God gives a foreshadowing or a, an understanding of what the relationship with the Holy Spirit was going to be like in the new covenant with God's people. He says this, moreover, this is Ezekiel 36, 26, moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. Within you to cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. It won't be this external relationship with the Spirit of God. He will dwell in his people. Then you get the New Testament, it's all over the New Testament. I don't have time to, to talk about all that. We're going to walk through some of that in Romans. But Jesus in John 14, 16 said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Who is that other helper, Jesus? Next verse. The Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit of God characterized by truth. Third person of the Trinity, God himself. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But Jesus said, when I sin, when I go away from here, the very spirit, my spirit, will come and take up residence in you. Wow. 
You come to Romans 8 and Paul has all of this understanding of the Holy Spirit and you come to Romans 8 and he declares that by faith alone through the gospel now every believer is indwelt that the Spirit of God takes up residence within every single believer. Romans 8 verse 9. And we're going to walk through the chapter, but verse 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. End of verse 11 says, He, God, will also, or I'm sorry, He, the Spirit, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Listen, beloved, that is a game changer now and for all eternity that God himself dwells within his people. Here's your big truth that we're going to kind of ping off of for the next few weeks. It comes out of these verses. It's this. The Holy Spirit indwells every follower of Jesus Christ. That's shouting ground, man. God himself dwells within his people collectively and within his people individually as we're going to see in Romans chapter 8. John Stott, pretty well-known pastor and author, he, he said it this way, he said, the Christian life is essentially, I'll just read it to you, the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. Your life is energized and animated and empowered. You have a constant fellowship with God himself through the power of his very spirit indwelling you, and the implications of that in our life are just immense. Immense. Romans chapter 8 is all about life in the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 begins with no condemnation because of the Spirit. And Romans chapter 8 ends with no separation from God ever because of the Spirit. Glory. So what we're going to try to do as best we can, we're going to cover the first 11 verses. And that's very optimistic on my part. I know that. We're going to look at the first 11 verses and just trying to figure out what does it mean that the Spirit of God indwells us? What does that look like in my daily life? How does that change everything for the believer as Paul teaches us here in Romans? So look with me. We're going to walk through these verses and we'll start in verse 1. Then we're going to make a few applications, give you some uh, big ideas that kind of flow out of this singular big truth that we talked about before. So look in verse 1. Let's walk through these verses. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, if that's the first time you've ever read that verse, that's shouting ground. If you've read that verse a million times and have it memorized and pasted all over your wall, that's shouting ground. There is no condemnation ever for those who are in Christ Jesus as a result of the gospel of Christ. Glory. Then Paul's going to continue and kind of explain why he's able to say that. He's going to give us the, the basis of him saying there's no condemnation. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin 
and death. Let's stop right there. Paul, what are you, what are you, what are you teaching us here? What, what does this mean to us? Well, I'm going to give you your first big idea, and it's this, that the Spirit sets us free. The Spirit sets us free. What does that mean? Well, go back to verse 1. Paul says an incredible truth. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, I encourage you to circle and mark up and star and whatever you do, verse 1. But Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. The word condemnation literally means it's a legal verdict. It's a courtroom setting to say guilty, guilty, of, uh, guilty as a lawbreaker, guilty as a rebel before God, which is the condition we were all in prior to Christ. Condemnation is a verdict of guilt and the penalty that the verdict demands. But Paul says because we are in Christ, there is never any condemnation for the child of God. Condemnation is the opposite of the word justification. We have been justified by faith in Christ alone. We, have made, we are made right with God. That standing will never change because we're in Christ. You can't have justification and condemnation at the same time. They're opposite of one another. You have been justified in Christ. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Tim Keller said this is a summary, the statement of the whole ground of Christian assurance. For the believer, there can never be any condemnation by nor separation from our Heavenly Father. Why? Watch this. Because of the finished work of His Son on the cross and the ongoing work of His Spirit in our hearts. So Paul is clearly saying here, because he says this statement in verse 1, and then verse 2, he begins word 4. Okay, here's why I'm saying that. Verse 3, 4, here's why I'm saying that. And then verse 4, he says, so that. So you're going to see the statement, here's the basis of it, and then it's the desired outcome of it. So hang with me. How can you say there's no condemnation? First, the work of the Son, verse 3. Paul says, for what the law could not do. We talked about this last week. The law of God is good and it's holy and it's right, but it can't change a wicked, depraved heart. It can only condemn. Paul says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh because of us, God did. God did. What did he do? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus takes on flesh, sinless life, bears the full condemnation and wrath for our sin, and therefore condemns sin so that we would never be condemned. How can you say there will never be any condemnation for those who are in Christ because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? The gospel. See that? But then Paul goes on, he says, but there's more. Not only can we continually say there's no condemnation because of the finished work of Christ, we can say there's no condemnation because of the ongoing work of His Spirit in our lives. Verse 1, verse 2 says, Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 2, 4. Paul, help us understand the basis of what you're saying. For the law, that's not referring to 
God's law. If, if you read through Romans, sometimes Paul will use the same word, and it has multiple meanings, and it gets a little tricky to interpret. I understand that. Here he's referring not necessarily to the Torah or the law of God. He's likely referring to the concept of power, if you will. For the law or the power now that you're under is of the Spirit, characterized by life, of life, that we know by means of being in Christ. In other words, everything has changed for us. You're now operating under a different power. Before Christ, you operated under the power of the law, which could only condemn. The power of sin, which could only bring death. Now, Paul says, as a result of being in Christ, you are operating under a brand new power. He says, the law of the power, or the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law or the power of sin and death. And by the way, as a Christian, as a believer, that is always continually true of you in every moment. There is no condemnation. Christ has freed you from the penalty of sin and death. And the Spirit dwelling within you grants us and you a new power that we're no longer operating under the power of sin and death. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, hang with me. This is really good. We know we are out of condemnation because we daily operate under a new power. The life-giving, sin-defeating, energizing power of the Spirit of God Himself within us. The Spirit is going to help you. The Spirit in us sets us free from the power of sin. That's good news, by the way. Now, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, we know sin is still present. Sin still has influence. We're talking about that. You can go back and listen to the, the recording a few weeks ago. We're talk more about that. But it do, it's not your master anymore. It doesn't have dominion over you because it's been defeated in Christ. And because you have a new power in the Spirit to defeat the sin. So watch. The Spirit has set us free from the power of sin. But Paul says there's more. Don't stop reading. There's more. Why'd you do all that, Lord? What's the so that? What's the point? Keep reading verse 4. So that the requirement of the law. Now this is going to get a little technical here with you, so just hang with me. What's the purpose in all this? The Spirit has set us free from the power of sin, and the Spirit continually sets us free Unto obedience of the word of God and the law of God. Now watch. Paul says the very spirit dwelling within you gives you life. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law. The word requirement is a derivative of the word righteousness. You could translate it this way. The King James translates it this way. That the righteousness of the law 
The, the law that God has given us, when you hear the word law, it's the righteous thoughts, words, deeds, which the law calls us to obey. It's rooted in the very character of God. The commandments of God are good and holy because God who spoke them is good and holy. And Paul now says, yes, the penalty of breaking the law is done in Christ. But he says, now you have the power for your life to be filled with the obedience to God's law and the life that comes from that because of a new power within you. Verse 4, he says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The word fulfilled is very practical. It, it, it means to complete, to fill out, to bring to completion. It's the idea of obeying, living out, fulfilling. God says now, God loves you so much and the very law that has come from his mouth is so good and holy and right. Yes, he's taken the penalty of the lawbreakers and placed them on Christ. And he's given you the power to obey that law and the life that comes from it in your daily lives. Get all that? <laughs> Let me give you a quote that might help and then I'll give you an illustration. How do we do that? Verse 4, we walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The ability to live this new way of life in obedience to the Word of God, particularly the law of God that I'll explain in a minute, only comes by the Spirit dwelling within us. I'll give you a quote. John Stott said this. He said, Holiness is the ultimate purpose of the incarnation and the atonement. He said, the end God has in view when sending His Son is not only our justification, Romans 1-7, through but also our holiness. Positional, yes, but practical in our daily lives. Holiness is Christ-likeness, and Christ-likeness is the fulfilling of the righteous law. In other words, practical holiness in our life is not mystical. It's not some weird thing depending on how long your skirt is or whether or not you wear makeup. It is Christ being formed in you. And Christ being formed in you will look like obedience to the Word of God by the Spirit of God who empowers you and the daily life that flows out of that. Can I give you an example I think might help? I think for whatever reason in our generation, and I'll, I'll point the finger to me, it's true of me, when I hear the word law or the law of God, I think this, I think rigid, I think cold, I think dead, and I understand that. We're not talking about the ceremonial law of the Old Testament of killing all the animals that's done in Christ. We're not talking about the civil law of how Israel relates as a country. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the moral law that is an expression of the very character of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, and all your might. And the second is like it, Jesus said. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. By the way, we all know naturally how to love ourselves. You, the Spirit of God empowers us to naturally, through the Word of God, know how to love others like we love ourselves naturally. If you are here and you are a believer, I bet you have you have felt the frustration of understanding that command and saying, Lord, oh man, I want to love you more. 
I mean, I see that law is not rigid, loving you and you being the center of my life and you being the center of my choices and you being the supreme focus of my life. That's what I long for, but I'm, I'm limited because I'm still in the flesh and all of that. The law is freeing. That those two, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, then were broken down in the Ten Commandments, if you will. And then those were broken down in other laws in the Old Testament. All, all representative of the very character of God. Let me give you another example. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to get through 11 verses, so just hang on. We'll give you another. <laughs> Grace. Anyway. One of the Ten Commandments is this. You've heard it. You shall not bear false witness. Now, does that feel restrictive to you? I want you to imagine the possibilities that you now have because of the Spirit of God in you. Not to walk around going, whoop, they're not telling a lie. That's, that's, no, no. Imagine as a child of God, you now saying, Lord, I want that to be true in me by your Spirit, that every word that comes out of my mouth is saturated with complete truth. There is no falsehood that comes out of my mouth. There's no selfishness that comes out of my mouth. There's no insecurities that come out. There's no angle to everything I say. Because my heart is transformed, what comes out of my mouth will be truth and will be wise and will be healing and will be helpful and will be good for those who hear. Does that sound restrictive? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying now the penalty of the law is gone in Christ and the power to walk in the law of God and the life that it gives is now given to us because the Spirit of God is dwelling within you. Hey, listen. Would it change your home if nobody in your home spoke with any falsehood at all? <laughs> Can you imagine how that alone would change our marriage and change our relationships and change the workplace? Would our parenting be different if everything that came out of our kids' mouth was true? Don't look at me so godly, parents. Your kids are just like mine. The law of God is not restrictive. In our flesh, it was because it only condemned. Now in the spirit, there is capacity to obey God and his word and the life that is there. Every area of life. Glorious. The Spirit sets us free. Secondly, I know two of three. We're going to go through this one a little quicker. Not only does the Spirit set us free from the penalty, but to the power. Secondly, the Spirit sets our minds. The Spirit changes everything presence of the very mind of Christ in us, according to 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit himself changes everything. Look how Paul says it, verse 5. He says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind that is set on the spirit, life and peace. And what Paul's talking about here, again, is the idea that before Christ, before faith entered and you were born again, you lived according to the flesh. 
I lived according to the flesh. He says, there are those who are according to the flesh. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. The word flesh here is not just our skin. It doesn't even merely mean our appetites or instincts. It's the idea of our corrupted and unredeemed humanness. Our sin-dominated self. It involves our mind, our will, our emotions. In other words, before Christ, we lived with our minds, our mindset, our worldview, the way we saw life, the way we saw money, the way we saw relationships, the way we saw God, the way we saw everything was according to our fallen, sinful, self-centered flesh. All of us. And that's where every unbeliever lives because their mindset is what comes natural, born in of Adam, our forefather, we're born that way. I'm not going to take time to read it all. Ephesians 2 mentions it. Ephesians 2 Verse 3 says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Left to ourselves, that's our mindset. That's our world perspective. That's how we see everything. But when the Spirit of the living God comes to indwell believers at the moment of salvation, there is, a, there is a complete overhaul of our whole worldview. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, when the scales fell from his eyes, he could see in a way he could never see before. He had understanding that he never had before. It wasn't just that he had a different opinion or a different preference. He was a new person, and the Spirit of God was indwelling him. That's why Paul says, now, those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Our desires are different our longings are different. Our loves are different. We love and we desire and we cherish the things the Spirit of God loves and cherishes and desires. Our want-tos are different. Listen, that's why morality never works. That's why religiosity never works. That's why Jesus said, true salvation, you must be born again. And the very life of the Spirit of God takes up residence at the moment of faith. Verse 7, he says, Because the mind set on the flesh, the way we were prior to Christ, is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. By the way, it can look that way on the outside, and it can wear the Christian t-shirt, and it can do all the Christian things. But apart from the Spirit of God taking up residence, all of that is still hostility to God because it's still from a heart of selfishness. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Can't. It's impossible. But Paul says the glory is that now, by faith, in the finished work of Christ, the very Spirit of God comes to take up residence within you, and your entire worldview is changed. The way you see things is different. Your loves change. Your affections change. Because now you are living according to the Spirit of God, not according to your self-centered flesh. Changes everything. 
That's why someone who's not a believer, who doesn't have the Spirit of God, can go through all the motions. And we can, we can bring them to church and we can do all these different things, but there's just no interest there yet. That's why as believers, we do some things that the world looks and goes, why in the world do you believe in a God you can't even see? Why in the world do you read a book and cherish a book that's 2,000 years old? Why in the world do you gather every Sunday with these strange people and sing these songs? And Why do you go around the world and risk your life to proclaim this message that you call a gospel? Because now our mindset is not what it was before. We have our mindset that's under the control of the Spirit of God. We are changed. 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 It's glorious. It's the work of the Spirit within us. Pastor Mike, I, just a quick question on this. Is, is this a this mindset thing you're talking about? And we're going to talk more about this in Romans 8. This is kind of over you really quick, but is this a permanent reality or is this a daily pursuit? And this mindset that's different, is this. Is this a permanent reality because of Christ, or is this a daily pursuit? You know what the answer is? Yes. <laughs> it's a trick question. In other words, we have been fundamentally transformed by the Spirit of God within us. But Colossians chapter 3 says, to all believers, even with that, here's what we are to do. We are to set our mind on things above, not the things that are on earth. There is a continued pursuit of the things of God practically in our lives because of the power of the Spirit of God within us that enables us to do that. Let me give you an example. Children of Israel, right? Old Testament. God delivered them from Egypt. They came out of Egypt. They were no longer under their taskmaster. They were no longer under bondage. They were set free. They were going to the promised land. And for the first few years and really years to come, half of them still moaned and groaned because they wanted to go back to Egypt. You know why? Because even though they had been set free from bondage, they read the newspaper that came from Egypt, and they watched the TV shows that came from Egypt, and they read all the tweets that came out of Egypt, and they watched the videos that came out of Egypt, and they immersed themselves in the things of Egypt and wondered why their hearts still drifted back toward Egypt. Listen, beloved, that's true for you and I. There has been a fundamental change in us, in our very identity by the Spirit of God living within us. But in our daily lives, it should not surprise us if we read the things of the world, if we immerse ourselves in the things of the world, if we take all the pleasures of this world that we're no longer part of and wonder why the things of God are not as appealing to us as they were in the past. Listen, set your mind on things above where there's life. The mind... Set on the things of the flesh is death. That's positionally true and that's practically true. But the mind set on the spirit, what is the result in your daily life? Life and peace. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the sword of the spirit. Set your mind on the things of God. Pursue these things because it's who we are. By the power of the Spirit. Very quickly, I'm just going to read these final verses and make a couple applications and we'll be done. So the, the Spirit sets us free. The Spirit sets our minds. And thirdly and finally, the Spirit makes us alive. Look at verse 9. All this that Paul has said. Now you come to verse 9. He says, however, 
You're not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Christ. The Holy Spirit here is referred to as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. In other words, the Trinitarian reality that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, proceeds from the Son. It's Trinitarian God. He indwells all believers at salvation. The idea here that you can be a believer without the Spirit of God is foreign to Paul and his understanding. When does that happen? Ephesians 1.13 says, the moment you believe the Spirit of God, you are sealed by the Spirit of God. It says you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit, verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The word spirit there seems to refer to the, our spirit, not the Holy Spirit, and this idea again of regeneration, of this quickening, of this taking a dead man and giving life to him. How does that happen? By the spirit of God. That we are now living spirits because of the Spirit of God within us. That's why Jesus said, whoever believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In John chapter 7, next verse he said, of the Spirit he was speaking. Jesus said the Spirit gives, gives life. Spirit is like a river of living water that gives life to our mortal bodies. We are now alive because of the Spirit. And you say, Pastor Mike, sometimes I don't feel alive. I understand what you're saying. But the struggle with sin is so powerful and so real. That's why Paul ends Romans 7 that we looked at last week and says, Wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death. He asked that question. If, you've been, if you're a believer, you ask that question. How am I going to fight this struggle? It's still so strong. And Paul says, body of this death is still so present. Sin is defeated, but it's not eliminated. In that day, when a person was convicted of a murder, the corpse of the dead victim would be strapped on the back of the murderer, and he would have to walk around with a dead body strapped to his back. And it was called the body of this death. And Paul takes that illusion and says, here's what it's like to be alive in Christ now. We have a spirit that has been made alive, but we're carrying around the corpse of an old dead man called our flesh. And who will set me free from it? And then he introduces Romans chapter 8 and says, now you have been set free by the power of the spirit of God dwelling within you. He has made us alive. Struggle continues? Sure does. Battle still continues? Sure does. How long? Verse 11, we're finished. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, future tense, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. As the team comes on up and we begin for a response, here's what Paul's saying. By the Spirit of God, gives you life in your spirit now. Future, he'll give life to your very body. And the same way Christ was raised from the dead, we will be raised and there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. And we will have a living spirit and a living body, a resurrected body, just like Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And we'll press out all the implications and what that looks like in our lives over the next couple weeks in Romans chapter 8. If you'll bow your heads for just a minute. Here's a question for you. Paul's very clear and says, He who does not have the Spirit 
does not belong to Christ. And I'm just pleading with you this morning. If you're here and you don't desire the things of God and you're running through the motions and it seems like you're reading other people's mail, it is because you've never been born again. It is because you're in the flesh and the very Spirit of God is not dwelling inside of you. This morning, I, I plead with you, by faith, you can cry out to Jesus Christ who has died in your place, who promises that you will be born again to new life. We'd love to speak with you about that right when the service is over, what it means to go from death to life in Christ Jesus. You hear, you're a follower, you know Christ. Where's, where's your mindset? Things of the world? Things of the flesh? things of God. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for these amazing truths that we find in Romans chapter 8. Press them down into our hearts and lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.